Welcome to this session with Grace Point Church, and I especially welcome our church family who are joining us, as well as guests who may be joining us today also. And uh, we continue on with our study in the letter of Philippians. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 3, find Philippians chapter 3, we'll continue in our study through this little letter. Uh, we receive a lot of spam emails, of course, and uh, one of them was from a clothing retailer that uh, I like their clothes. And so I looked at the subject line of the email, and the subject line it caught my interest. It said, double coupon dollars are gift to you. And uh, the sales trick worked, and so I opened the email because it was promising something free, and it compelled me to open the email. But then when I read the email, it uh, changed the whole meaning of that. It said, earn double coupon dollars in the email itself. Wait a minute, didn't the subject line say it was a gift? And now I have to earn their gift to me. Well, uh, in the whole of theology, we know that there's a, a bait and switch kind of thing going on, and I lost interest in this particular promotion, promotional email, but I thought about uh, all down through history, there have been churches, and they're with us today, that have pulled the same bait and switch uh, tactic on people. They say salvation is God's free gift, but here's how you earn it. Salvation is God's free gift, and here's how you earn it, and there's plenty of churches around who do that. Uh, you know, we live in a performance-oriented culture, and uh, working for something always appeals to us, appeals to our flesh. But the Apostle Paul is combating false teaching at the Church of Philippi. There were those who were seeking to undo the faith and undo uh, the growth of believers uh, everywhere that the Apostle Paul went, especially in his second missionary journey, <clears throat> as recorded for us in Acts 15. And 16. So if you take your copy of God's Word, I'll pray and then we'll read this portion that we will cover today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word today. Thank you for uh, your, your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us in the truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for this letter, this little letter to the church at Philippi and for bringing it to us here today. And may we learn from you. May your Holy Spirit teach us. May we be sensitive to what you're doing in our lives and uh, bring these things to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Philippians chapter 3, we started this last week. We covered the first three verses. I will read those again just to set the context. Remember, the Apostle Paul is uh, writing the church at Philippi to thank them for a gift that they had sent to him, but also... Uh, to exhort them, encourage them on how to walk in the Christian life. Remember in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them this is an imperative or command. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to talk about humility and submissiveness and unity and how we are to live the Christian life with others. And, uh, and then in chapter 3, he begins to address this whole issue of exposing the false teachings that is seeking to undermine the faith of these believers. And of course, false teaching is still with us, all around us. And uh, so in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 21, he is going to really accelerate his exposure of these false teachers and so the people will know what to look for. 
Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, follow along as I read this. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the right resurrection from the dead. Amen and amen. In this uh, great passage, uh, the Apostle Paul uses himself as an example of one who thought he had all his life all together and he'd be found acceptable and approved of God. He thought his performance would get him approval before God and into heaven. You know, we live in a performance-oriented culture, and of course, uh, that's the way our society is set up. If you don't perform, you don't get a paycheck. And so this whole idea that uh, we are surrounded by a performance-based, excuse me, and the equation tends to look like this. We tend to buy into the equation that says that our performance plus other people's approval of us equals our self-worth. And, uh, of course, it really doesn't, but that's what we buy into. The danger, of course, is that uh, this is applied to our eternal well-being or safety or salvation. It goes like this. Our performance plus God's approval equals our salvation, our eternal life. And that is a false equation. These are false equations. And of course, churches uh, say salvation is a free gift, and then this is how you earn it. Uh, many, many ways they do that. And of course, uh, this has been combated since uh, the book of Acts in the, the beginning of the early church. And at this point in this little letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul turns his attention and direction and focus on false teaching and what it means to live out the Christian life. If we are to live in verse 127, we live in conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, we also need to understand that we will be under attack. Uh, so the Apostle Paul uh, says is telling us and re-emphasizing that when one is born again, when one believes in Jesus for everlasting life, uh, he, our works, our goodness has nothing to do with it. Uh, pastor and commentator Warren Wiersbe writes this about, uh, he's really commentating on the book of Galatians, which is an expansion of what we've been talking about here. 
and he writes, uh, several important uh, issues are at stake here, the least of which is the, worst, the, the work of, cross, of Christ excuse me, on the cross as he declared the message of the gospel. And we know the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, John 3, 16, Hebrews 10. Uh, God pronounces a solemn condemnation on anyone who preaches any other gospel than the gospel of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, his son. Uh, when any religious leader, Warren Worsby is warning us here, when any religious leader says, unless you belong to our group, you cannot be saved, or unless you participate in our ceremonies and keep our rules, you cannot be saved, he is adding to the gospel and is denying the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians to make it clear that salvation is holy by God's grace through faith plus nothing, unquote. That was Warren Wiersbe. And of course, here the Apostle Paul is warning us about a similar situation in Philippi. And these uh, people were uh, invading the church and bringing the false teaching in and upsetting uh, their position, their identity. And so last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, and the first verse is really a bridge from chapter 2 into the content of chapter 3. And he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And so we saw last session that our identity should cause us great delight. There's a command to rejoice there. But along with that delight, along with the joy that we can have in Jesus Christ, there is real danger in, in the Christian's life. And he, he warns us the danger. Our, our identity brings danger. False teaching is being exposed. And he introduces us to these false teachers. There are three warnings here. Uh, beware, 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 or look out, look out, look out. Again, as I said, if you use the New International Version, they soften the force of this verse by not translating all three imperative verbs. But he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, or the mutilators, if you will. And he's turning uh, this whole idea of uh, the, the fact that these uh, false teachers were really identified as scavengers. They were ones that were upsetting people. They were evil workers. They were malicious laborers. And also they were the false circumcision or mutilators. It's a different word than uh, circumcision uh, down in verse 3. And so that's who they are. And he reminds us uh, that we can have great joy, but yet there's great danger. And then in verse 3, our identity is distinctive. We are the true circumcision, he says. Of course, over in Colossians 2.11, it says, For in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, a change of heart. It's not a physical Remember, circumcision was a sign that they, a person belonged to the covenant with Israel, uh, given to Abraham. <clears throat> but the church age, physical circumcision is not a requirement for entrance into relationship with God. Faith, not circumcision, was the basis of God's covenant with Abraham. And it always is by faith. Believers in Christ are said to be circumcised in him, that Colossians 2.11. And so verse 3 tells us our distinctiveness. We worship. We have a distinctive experience in the Holy Spirit. We worship God in spirit. We glory in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And we also have confidence, not in our flesh, 
expression of distrust of our flesh, but actually we put no confidence in the flesh because we have confidence in Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul from verse 4 on through verse 11 is going to use himself as one who is uh, one that has confidence in the wrong things. And he's telling us and using his previous life before he became a believer in Jesus Christ as an example of the wrong place we can put our confidence. Confidence in ourselves is a reality. Look at verse 4 again. In verse 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, if anybody can put confidence in your, in your life, in your good works, to get you into heaven, to make you right before God, he's the one who is the example. He says, confidence in the flesh is a possibility. Confidence in the flesh is a fact. In fact, uh, the whole book of Galatians warns us about legalism to be accepted before God that uh, we think we have to do a bunch of works. And so that's why <clears throat> the Apostle Paul tells us that legalism is appealing to our flesh because we are very skeptical of anything that doesn't cost us something in that sense. Uh, we believe in grace and grace alone and grace by faith for salvation, and grace is that unmerited favor of God that we cannot do anything to earn it. It is unmerited, and that just goes against our human nature and our fleshly nature because we think we have to pay something to get something. And verse 5 and 6, confidence in self is measurable. Here the apostle Paul is listing out all the things why his confidence uh, was so great before he came to know Christ as Savior. First of all, in verse 5, he was, there's uh, four things. Confidence in his birth, in his, his nationality. First of all, confidence in the right, circumcised on the eighth day, that it was according to the law, that male children would be circumcised on the eighth day. And so he said he fulfilled that. It was a right. It was a ritual. And then secondly, of the nation Israel, he had confidence not only in, his right, in the right, but in the realm. So there was ritualism, nationalism, and then confidence in a relation of the tribe of Benjamin. It was tribalism. And of course, Benjamin uh, was a blessed, blessed tribe in Israel, and he had confidence in a relation. And in a Hebrew of Hebrews, he had confidence in a race. So ritualism, nationalism, tribalism, racism, he held his confidence measurable by his birth, by how he was raised up. And then in verse 6, confidence by choice, by choice. He had confidence in a religion a law, as to the law of the Pharisees, confidence in his record, a persecutor of the church. Remember, Paul, before he became Paul, was Saul. And he was a persecutor of the church until he came to Damascus Road and had that conversion experience where Jesus Christ confronted him. So confidence in a religion, confidence in a record, and then thirdly, confidence in personal righteousness. Righteousness in the law found blameless. That is quite a statement by the Apostle Paul. So there's confidence by birth, confidence by choice. And yet Paul is showing us that those things, even in, in the nation Israel, under the Mosaic law, under uh, the Pharisees there, he would be found a rising star, a shining star of being accepted by God. 
but he talks about the dangers of this self-confidence and he continues to model authentic Christianity. So in verses 7 through 11, he's taking inventory, if you will, inventory of authentic acceptance before God. Verses 7 and 8, he takes inventory of the old life and the new life. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And so those things that he just listed, his standing in the community, standing in the nation, his standing before men, he counted them as lost. Those things, he suffered the loss of all those things. In verse 8, the new life, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Notice this new life. He counted the goal to be with Christ and everything else. All these things he's listed in his life, these works that were supposedly make you gain approval with God and acceptance before a righteous, holy God. He says they are as rubbish. And that word rubbish, that's more than just some trash laying around that. It's like human excrement. And he counts them as rubbish. There's no value in them before a righteous, holy God. In verses 9 and 11, he takes inventory of the gain. Real righteousness comes from Christ. In verse 9, we see there, And that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. A couple of weeks ago, we, a couple sessions ago, we talked about the three tenses of salvation, and we talked about uh, past tense, I was saved from the very penalty of sin, that's called justification, and then uh, I am being saved from the very power of sin, that's sanctification, and I will be saved from the very presence of sin, and that's called glorification. Here in verse 9, we see justification, righteousness, he was, as Saul, and in his previous life, he was depending on all these things about his birth and about his choices and about his religion and his nation and his tribe and his rights and uh, his ritualism and, and nationalism for his righteousness. It was a self-righteous label. And of course, nobody is good enough to get into heaven for all have sinned and fall short of God, of the glory of God. And so justification is being declared righteous. It is where Jesus Christ took our sin upon him and he paid the penalty at the cross of Calvary. And he is the perfect, righteous, holy one. And he imputes his righteousness to people who believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. On our own, we cannot be good enough to get into heaven and justification is given to us by Jesus Christ uh, and he alone and he is the one who gives righteousness to us so when God the Father looks at believers he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is our position our standing then in verse 10 he talks about this issue of sanctification I am being saved from the power of sin look at verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Know this person, his power, his passion, the suffering, the pathos that Jesus Christ took on himself for us. And so I think about uh, this whole issue of sanctification. 
Jerry Bridges, uh, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, writes these following words. We often are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that sin grieves the heart of God. We cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin, chiefly because we are success-oriented, uh, not because we know that it is offensive to God. God wants us to walk in obedience, not in victory. Did you get that? God wants us to walk in obedience and not victory. Talking about our sanctification, our walk in Christ. Obedience is oriented to God. Victory is oriented to self, Bridges says. This may seem like merely splitting hairs over semantics, but there is a subtle self-centered attitude at the, at the, <clears throat> in many's, at the root of many of our difficulties with sin. This is not to say that God doesn't want us to experience victory over sin, but it's to emphasize that the victory is a byproduct of obedience to Jesus Christ. As we concentrate on living an obedient holy life, we will certainly experience the joy of victory over sin. So verse 9, we, are, we were saved from the very penalty of sin. Verse 10, we are being saved from the power of sin. And verse 11, glorification, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Look at verse 11. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead, we may attain this resurrection. We have this hope, this assurance. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are secure in him. When Jesus said, believe in me and you will have everlasting life, he was not tricking us or lying to us. In this verse, Paul is looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He wants to be sure that he is with the righteous, that only Christ can give us in the resurrection and bring our Christian hope into reality. And so Paul keeps the goal in focus. He's not expressing any doubt about his salvation, but he's giving us his testimony of his own determination to be with Christ, even though these opponents, these false teachers, are demanding that he adds rituals and rules to the faith. Assurance of resurrection is the perfect reason to reject the opponents and adhere to faith in Christ alone. In old age, the artist, the French artist Renoir, the great French painter, suffered from arthritis, which twisted and cramped his hand. His friend Henri Matisse, another artist, watched sadly while Renoir grasped the brush with only his fingertips, continued to paint even though each movement of his hand caused stabbing pain. One day Matisse asked Renoir while he persisted in painting at the expense of such torture, Renoir replied, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. And that's the hope of the Christian life, even though this life seems adverse and difficult, especially in our times and day and age, and seems unjust in many ways, yet Jesus Christ has promised us eternal life. I like the quote by Mother Teresa when she said that this life in light of eternity will be nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. <laughs> I like that quote when you think about the future and hope we have as Jesus Christ. Well, I have four questions for you on this passage. The first one is, how well do you know the one with whom you drop the name Christian when you identify yourself? How well do you know him? 
The Apostle Paul wants to know him so much. He's got a fervor to know Jesus Christ better and better. Are you growing in your faith? Are we growing in faith as we live out our lives? What are you depending upon? Secondly, what are you depending upon for approval and acceptance with God of the universe? What is it? Uh, do you think that your confidence is in your good works, in your relations, in your rituals, in your religion, in your righteousness, self-righteousness? What are you depending upon for belief and acceptance by God? Are you depending upon your performance or Christ's righteousness for your eternal life? Remember, there is none righteous, no, not one. You know, we oftentimes make two mistakes about God. They seem to be pretty consistent. First of all, people think they can go to heaven by good works and that we see whole segments of Christendom thinking and other, and other uh, religions, cults, etc., think they can go to heaven by good works. Just like the woman crawling across the, the square in Mexico City with skinned up knees and rough hands, trying to work her way to God, think, working her way to heaven. Most people think they can uh, get to heaven by believing in God and doing good things. But listen to what the scriptures have to say about our good works for all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are very clear about this. For, we are, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, good people do not go to heaven because goodness is not a requirement to get into heaven. Perfection is. That's why the law, when we look at Romans and look at the role of the law, the role of the law is revealing how much we lack perfection. And per, uh, only the perfect will get there. And of course, the perfection comes from Jesus Christ as he imputes his righteousness to us. We can be very good religious people, but without Christ, we can never be good enough to go to heaven. People make a second mistake about God, I believe. They think they have forever, and to make that decision about believing in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Mistakenly, they think they can indefinitely put off this decision, yet for many, uh, the, the, the clock runs out before they make that decision. And so I would encourage you today to recognize that the Bible says today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of your salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We never know when our names will show up in an obituary column. It's time, even today, to believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Again, when I read scripture and see promises, I want to know, uh, I want to know what is the condition for receiving the promise? What is the consequence for what God is saying? So in John 3:16, when he tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What is the consequence? Well, the consequence here is great. It's everlasting life. But what is the condition? Condition is believing in Jesus. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, the condition for everlasting life is belief in the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the one who took our place on Calvary, 
the second person of the Trinity who is at the right hand of the Father right now as our great high priest, our advocate, and our intercessor. And we need him. And so, have you believed in Jesus for everlasting life? That is the key question of your whole life. And that is the key decision of your whole life, is believing in Christ for everlasting life. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a mighty, great God. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for us. And I know that there are many who are listening to this message, perhaps many, who are trying to win your approval and your love by doing certain things and rituals. And uh, I pray today that as they look at the Apostle Paul's testimony here, they may understand that all attempts uh, to add human efforts to being born again to heaven are just rubbish. They cannot make us right with you. And Heavenly Father, I pray today that they would open their lives to you as Savior. And I pray, Lord, that they would recognize that the restlessness in this life is merely an indication that there's something more. And I pray that they would find deep joy and satisfaction in an intimate relationship with you. Like the Apostle Paul, may our chief desire be to know you and to fill your, fulfill your plan in our lives. And it's here in your name I pray. Amen and amen. Let me send you out with a benediction. And the benediction really is just to send you into the days ahead and uh, into your mission field, whatever that may be. In 2 Thessalonians 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes there, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace.